0: Father, uh, we're thankful for this day we have to gather. Uh, We see the beautiful leaves that have been on the trees this week. We're reminded that you are a beautiful, glorious God. And we're also reminded that our life comes from you. Uh, That one day we will have our earthly lives end and we will face you. And we're thankful we can be confident for that day. Thank you for your word which informs us of that an eternal kingdom that never passes away that we will inherit, and even that we can now be ambassadors of that kingdom in this world in which we live. Uh, Would you speak to us now? Through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My first real job was in the Sawgrass Mills Mall Fort Lauderdale, Florida, working at a pretzel shop. I was a team member of the grand corporation called Auntie Anne's. Uh, You learned several things very quickly when you joined the team at Auntie Anne's. Um, One, you learned all the things required to keep a store like that clean. Lots of wiping and sweeping and mopping went into that. Uh, You also learned that melted butter, liquefied butter, while it smells and tastes good, it gets on everything including your clothes. It's impossible to get out of your clothes once it's on them. So you smelled like pretzels for the rest of your life. But third, you learned some very practical skills, practical, that is, if your life is spent making pretzels. Uh, You learned how to mix the dough and work the industrial ovens and how to use the cash register. All that you picked up very quickly. Within the first couple weeks, someone who joined the team would figure that stuff out. But there was one skill that was much more elusive and that was to be the mighty pretzel roller. Uh, the pretzel roller is the one that gets all the glory. Uh, they take the lump of dough and they roll it out, kind of like you would roll play dough out to about a two-foot-long snake-like shape, and then they do this magical toss-twist thing, and out comes a picture-perfect pretzel, the same size and shape every single time. Now, that doesn't happen by accident. Uh, The job of a pretzel roller was, in fact, a very difficult thing to do, which is why most of the, the team members didn't get to do it for several months. I remember when it was my turn, finally, I'd been watching out of the corner of my eye as the toss and twist happened, trying to prepare myself for that moment. I'd even asked people at the store, give me some tips, how do I do this? I don't want to be a fool. But then the moment came, and I had the dough in my hands, and I hesitated. What is it? Twist and then toss, or toss and then twist? And I was there for maybe about a minute, and then my manager came up behind me. She said, "Tommy, you'll never learn it until you do it." So toss the dough. Okay, so I tossed the dough, and I made a total disaster the first 500 times or so. But I learned the lesson. Eventually, I figured it out, and I would toss the dough, and out would come a picture-perfect pretzel, the right size and shape. For some reason, mine were all upside down. I don't know why that happened. No (laughs) spiritual lesson from that at all. We all know the value of experiential learning, right? Uh, There are some things you can hear about, you can even see about, but until you actually do them, you can only learn so much. Uh, Maybe you've learned that in a job that you've had or some role in your life as a parent, or a mentor, or or someone that has gone through a process of learning. There's a level of mastery that only comes by doing. Now, none of that that is lost on Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a master teacher, the best teacher that's ever lived. And he's been training a group of disciples. They've been walking with him and talking with him and seeing him preach sermons and do miracles. And this whole time, Jesus has been preparing them for a moment A moment where they will be given the authority to do his ministry themselves. Uh, That's what the text in front of us shows us. Uh, That moment where Jesus entrusts his inner circle of 12 disciples with his ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now as we study it together, we're going to see that there are lessons for us to draw from this Uh, This moment where they took the keys to the kingdom to start doing ministry on the authority of Jesus, because we'll find out that we too have been prepared and empowered to proclaim the kingdom of God to a puzzled world. Uh, That's what we'll see as we move through this passage. There are two parts to it: verses one through six, which will be the longest point of the two, proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom. And then verses seven through nine, puzzled by the king or perplexed by the king. In all this, I hope we all leave convinced of this, that you have been empowered to proclaim the kingdom to a perplexed world. Let's begin in that first section, proclaiming the kingdom in verses one through six. Uh, We've reached a turning point in Luke's gospel Uh, If you've been with us the last few weeks, Jesus has been doing a series of three miracles which were showing his unquestioned authority over three different realms or areas of the world. He is the master of the storm, able to calm the chaos with just a word. He is the master of the spirits, able to command even Satan's dark demons down to the abyss. And he's even the master of of sickness, able to bring healing even to someone who's severely sick and even someone who dies. But now the focus is shifting from Jesus, the master, revealing himself through miracles to, in chapter 9, Jesus more directly showing himself to his disciples. The center point, I think, of this whole chapter comes in verse 20, where Peter confesses after Jesus asks him, Jesus asks them, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ of God. Uh, that central confession that Jesus is God's appointed Messiah, the, the Christ, that's going to drive the whole rest of the book of Luke. It's going to lead to all the implications of what come next that ultimately lead him to the cross and to the empty tomb and his resurrection. So this whole section is about Jesus revealing himself to the disciples more directly. And and this first section shows us, showed them, that Jesus is the sort of master that delegates his authority. Uh, You see, Jesus has shown he has the very authority of heaven itself as the one given the task of proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Now, he is passing that on to his disciples uh, parents, you, if you've uh, raised a child up through the teenage years, um, at some point or another, you had the moment of fear and trembling that all parents that have kids that age have. That that moment when you hand over the keys to the family car to them. Uh, now, hopefully, but before that moment has come, you've done quite a bit of teaching and showing and going along with them in the car And yet there's something very significant about when you let them go out and do it for themselves, right? Uh, Look as this moment happens, as Jesus entrusts his disciples with his authority to proclaim the kingdom. Verse 1, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. Uh, Notice the power and authority they get, the same things that Jesus has just been doing, The passages right before that healing and casting out demons. Now that power, though, serves something else. That's what we see in verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Uh, Luke says it twice. In verse 2, it's proclaim the kingdom of God. Down in verse 6, it's preaching the gospel. They're synonymous phrases. They mean the same thing. Uh, Their disciples are being sent out with the same priorities that Jesus' ministry had. That was as a preacher who did miracles to confirm the power of his preaching. Remember back all the way to chapter 4, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry? uh, How did he come onto the scene, according to Luke? It was a sermon. Uh, He preached a sermon in a synagogue. And then after that, there started to be miracles he did Healings and casting out demons and all the other things, not just for a spectacle, but to prove the power of the word he brought. And what was that word? Well, it was a message about the kingdom of God. A few weeks ago, Dr. Um, Nicholas did a great job describing what the kingdom of God is. In case you weren't here or you've forgotten it, let me uh, try and uh, remind you of what it is very briefly. The kingdom of God is anywhere where the rule and reign of God extends. Uh, It's not a place where you can buy an airline ticket to. It's it's not somewhere where you can send a division of tanks to attack. Uh, The kingdom of God at this present moment and 2000 years ago when Luke, uh, the events Luke was describing, uh, the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality. It's everywhere where people bow before God and worship through his son, Jesus Christ through hearing his word and responding in faith. Uh, Anywhere where there is this bowing before God to his sovereign rule, that is the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, it won't always be that way. Uh, One day, the kingdom of God will be here in its fullness. On a, a future day, when King Jesus returns, and the whole world and the whole heavens above it are remade, On that day, the kingdom of God will be a real place with real visible uh, reality that you will be able to see. But at this moment, Jesus is preaching of the coming of the kingdom, uh, that people were to prepare their hearts for God's rule and reign that's come now through him. So the disciples have the same marching orders. Uh, Yes, they're going around healing and casting out demons, and we'll see they're very effective in what they do. But primarily, they are sent to proclaim, to preach the coming of the kingdom. Um, after that, we get a, a section that is a little puzzling at first. Um, it's tr- uh, travel orders, um, verses three through five. He uh, tells them to take nothing for their journey no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money. Uh, don't have two tunics. The, you could summarize it by saying they're to travel light. Um, there's a, a reason for that they're supposed to depend on God for their provision uh, they also were going to be relying on people's hospitality um, verse 4 mentions that they when you uh, whatever house you enter stay there and from there depart so they kind of find a house that will extend hospitality to them and that becomes their base of operation so they're supposed to set up shop there as long as they're doing ministry in that town. Now that fit perfectly with the social expectations of the day. Uh, if you were a faithful Jew, you knew it was your responsibility to show hospitality to travelers and that include traveling preachers. Now I think Jesus probably tells them not to move around because of a tendency we know from some other writings of around the time of the Bible that there were teachers that were taking advantage of people's generosity in their hospitality. Uh, They would go from one house to the next, milking them dry in the process, have their biggest, finest dinner, and then once they've had that, go off to the next house and just enjoy the best that everyone had to offer. I think Jesus is saying here, be content with whatever God provides. He also tells them what to do when they are rejected. You see that in verse 5? Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Uh, That's a a bit of an odd thing to our modern ears. Something to do with sandals and dust. Uh, I think it's probably playing on something that the uh, Jews were said to do back then. Whenever they would leave the promised land and go off into Gentile territory, uh, on their return, before they crossed the threshold into God's land versus pagan land. uh, They would shake off the dust from their sandals as a way of saying we're we're leaving the impure spot and we're coming back to the place where God rules and reigns. Uh, If that's the case, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's saying when they are rejected even by the Jewish people today, then they are to not necessarily take it personally, but treat it treat them like a Gentile to move on knowing that one day God's judgment will come even for the household of God. Now, in all this, uh, we're told they go from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing, and all of it goes just according to plan. Jesus gave them the keys, and it looks like they didn't make a mess of it. Praise be to God. Now, how in the world do you apply a passage like this? Now, to be honest, it is very easy to make a mess of applying a passage like this, because uh, many of us have the instinct we we want the Bible to be relevant for our lives. that's good. Uh, but sometimes we don't think carefully about how to do that. And if you run straight from the text you just read to your life today, uh, oftentimes you can draw conclusions that just aren't true or helpful. For instance, if we were to draw from this that anyone that's sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God, let's say a missionary, that they ought to be given Little or no provisions whatsoever, that we should make sure that they're good and hungry so they could be holy in their preaching, and that they should wholly rely on the hospitality of whoever they find, I think we'd we'll be drawing a, not only a wrong conclusion, but a really unhelpful one. Uh, actually, down through history, there have been many Christians that have made this mistake. Uh, during the time of the Great Awakening, uh, right before the the second Great Awakening, actually, um, there was a a series of churches in the United States that had this idea that the less they paid their pastor, that the more holy that pastor must be. Well, as you might imagine, that meant that their pastors had to spend time supporting them and their family with other pursuits besides studying the Bible and praying and the like. And their sermons showed their lack of attention. So as the historian we've been reading as an elder council named Ian Murray says... They starved their preachers, and their preachers starved them in return. In other words, you get what you pay for when it comes to the attention of your your missionary or your pastor to proclaim the kingdom. So I don't think you should run straight from this passage to our life without thinking carefully. First, who are we? Who are they? And what's in between us and them? Now, the passage describes them as the 12. Now, if you know your Bible, that's highly significant. Uh, 11 of those 12 are one day not just going to be sent, but the sent ones or the apostles, same word in Greek, uh, the apostles who first are given the privilege of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, to a world puzzled by Jesus. And if you remember in your Bible, Ephesians 2.20, That the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Uh, That is, that there is a continuity between the preaching of the first disciples, given the authority to preach on Jesus' behalf, and each and every one of us, as we do our part to proclaim the kingdom to a perplexed world. Now, I think that has a lot to say about how you go about your calling as an evangelist. Uh, Each and every one of us is called to tell people about Jesus, to proclaim, whether that's in front of a crowd of a thousand or to a single individual. In my experience, many Christians are masters of over-preparation when it comes to evangelism. Uh, We feel like we need to know the answer to every question, to anticipate any comeback they might have. Uh, We always feel like there's more preparation needed before we can just get out there and start talking about the fact That they need to know who Jesus is and what he demands of their life. Now, I think that this reality, that Jesus has given his authority to his people to proclaim the gospel, has everything to do with your encouragement and even your confidence as you share the gospel with someone. Uh, Realize it doesn't rest based on how skillful you are or how experienced you are, Uh, you know, Jesus isn't shocked by the fact that you may not be the most eloquent person in the room. And yet you might be precisely the person that he has intended to bring the good news of the kingdom to someone who's never heard it. Uh, Realize also that Jesus has not just given you a task. He's also given you the grace needed to accomplish it. He's granted you his Holy Spirit, who's promised to give you the words as well as the power needed to reach the very hearts of those who don't yet know Christ. He's also put you in a church filled with other people, all with the same calling, some of whom, frankly, have a lot of experience in how to do it really, really well. So take the advice from my manager back at Auntie Anne's Pretzels. You'll never learn it until you just do it. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Uh, Maybe you also just need to be encouraged by the reality that sharing our faith with people often can be greatly helped with a ministry of a healing of sorts. Uh, One of the other interpretive questions is, what do you do with this power to cast out demons and heal? Uh, Certainly, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking God never does anything like that these days. Uh, A little over a year ago, we heard from Uncle George and Good News from India. And he told us about church planting in parts of India where Christ has never been known. And one of the things he said happens again and again there is they see these mighty works of God that confirm the message as it's brought to people that have never heard the name of Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't want to throw shade at testimonies like that. And in fact, if you spend enough time talking to other Christians... Or maybe even if the Lord chooses it in your life, chances are you'll see God do something miraculous, maybe even to confirm the message of the gospel to someone. And yet I do think pastorally, it's wise for us to recognize that living where we do and when we do, that miracles are not the norm, and yet God does not leave us without powerful confirmation of the gospel we preach, In fact, he often uses our good works and acts of service to adorn the gospel message, as Titus puts it. Uh, Have you noticed that? How when you serve someone in the name of Christ, how it opens up their heart to receive what you want to talk with them about related to Jesus? Uh, I I love the examples I've seen in our church body of this very thing happening. Um, There was this dear woman living here in the neighborhood who came across a few of our church members one day walking in the neighborhood. Uh, She was dealing with a horrible, horrible disease that was terminal. And yet those members of the church rallied around her and showed her love, did all they could to help her get good medical care and prayed for her. And all that loving on her, all that service toward her, it opened up her heart. To listen to Jesus. Now I don't know whether she became a Christian or not. I I don't have any reason to say that she did. But I think that's a wonderful example of how the Lord uses our service. As a powerful confirmation of the gospel preached. Now we as a church try and do that together. Um, Our English as a second language ministry is trying to do that. It's it's trying to help people know the gospel. but, But it's also trying to do a tangible good to them. Help them to improve their English skills. And as we do that, we find that they're more open to hearing about the king we serve and the kingdom of God that's coming to this world. I think there's one last uh, application that we need to think about. And that's realizing that... um, Sorry, I lost my place for a second here. Okay, here we are. Uh, Realizing that there's a, a wonderful model for our discipleship embedded in the way Jesus brings along his disciples to this moment of giving them the keys to drive his ministry forward. Uh, Maybe you don't know where to start when it comes to discipling someone in your church. Uh, Here's a very simple model to follow. Many people have found it fruitful. Tell them how to do it. Show them how to do it. Watch them do it. And then turn them loose to do it. Uh, tell them how to do it, open up the Bible, read a book with them, tell them the things they need to know to pray well, be a good parent, evangelize. Then show them how to do it. Bring them alongside while you do it in some way so they can watch you. Then watch them do it, supervise them as they take those steps in ministry, and then finally cut them loose, let them do it on their own. Uh, it's amazing how effective that is. Um, It's one of the joys I have, my role on staff, getting to mentor our pastoral residents. Uh, Ryu and Lucas and Matt and uh, Josh as an intern, Uh, each of them are in some manner being trained for gospel ministry. We read books together. We talk about how they should do it. They, They get to watch me go on a hospital visit or do a pastoral counseling session or prepare a sermon. And then I watch them do it. Preach a sermon, go to a hospital, do whatever it is. And then Lord willing, one day I'll cut them loose and they'll go do it on their own. Uh, Maybe you you think to yourself that that's a wonderful model, but realize that's not just for pastors or missionaries to do. That's the way the body disciples other parts of the body. Uh, Last week, we had a wonderful testimony from Loretta. Thank you, Loretta, wherever you are for that, uh, of how in Titus 2... Older women can come alongside younger women and show them how to be better disciples of Jesus. Ask yourself this question. Who are you modeling what it is to be a Christian for? And who's modeling for you what it is to be a Christian? Uh, Maybe before you leave, the Lord lays on your heart a certain someone that you need to come alongside or someone to encourage. Let's realize that God does not leave us unequipped. And very often he uses our brothers and sisters in Christ to bring about that equipping that we might be faithful in proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Well, the disciples were well equipped and they were empowered. And as a result, they proclaimed the kingdom with power. And all that led to some results. that's what we see in the second section, which will be much shorter. Do not despair. Verses seven through nine, perplexed by the king. Uh, Team Jesus was making some noise, Luke shifts the narrative, and suddenly we are in the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, You may not remember Herod, Um, he was not the sort of guy that you would want to invite over for dinner. Uh, He was a very powerful man, Uh, he was under the thumb of the Romans, and yet he had a sort of governorship over the uh, Judea region, Uh, he could be called a Tetrarch or even a king, Um, Herod was a political survivor and consummately cruel. He had stayed in power by finding threats and proactively eliminating them, which meant that you did not want to be on the wrong side of Herod. An example A would be John the Baptist. Uh, John was a mighty prophet of God who did what prophets are called to do, to speak truth even in the face of very powerful people. And in his case, he called out Herod for an illicit marriage, for stealing the wife of a relative. Well, predictably, Herod was not a fan of that message. And as a result, John ended up with his head served up on a platter. Herod eliminated yet another threat. Now, a guy like Herod does not have many things that he doesn't know what to do with. Certainly doesn't have many enemies that he doesn't know what to do with. But what we notice in verse 7 is that Herod, surprise, surprise, is at a loss of what to do. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. That's likely including Jesus' ministry as well as the 12 being sent out. And here's the key part. And he was perplexed. He didn't have an answer for What was going on with Jesus? So he didn't know what exactly he needed to do. And it tells us exactly why he was perplexed. It's because of the reports he was getting from the grassroots people about what Jesus' ministry and the power of his preaching must mean. They thought, back in those days, that the arrival of the Messiah would come with the resurrection of prophets of old. Elijah was the most popular prophet to think would be coming back, but others as well. Well, the, the people don't know for sure who Jesus is reincarnate. They suspect maybe Elijah, maybe someone else. But then more ominously, did you catch the last one? Others said he might be John raised from the dead. Spooky. The guy he just killed coming back to get him. Well, Herod thinks to himself, well, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? There's there's an irony in Herod's statement there because he's on his lips is the question that everyone really needs to be able to answer. Who is this Jesus that dares preach about the very kingdom of heaven? Who could he possibly be to have such powerful confirmation of his message. Now, Herod, I don't want you to think for a second, is seeking Jesus not for pure motives. Uh, I don't think Herod thinks to himself, well, I got to see this Jesus guy. Maybe I'll repent of all this wicked stuff I'm doing. No, I think Herod is sniffing out an enemy that he might need to proactively uh, deal with. And yet, there is a sense where Herod is perplexed. And in his not knowing what to do with Jesus, he is, for at least for a time, interested in him. Now realize, there are many people that, for one reason or the other, are drawn to Jesus. Sometimes because of the spectacle that accompanies his, the preaching about him. Uh, sometimes because he's uh, a well-known historical figure. Uh, other times because they think he's some sort of moral example to look up to. Uh, Many people are drawn to Jesus in some sense, and yet they they are drawn to him not as those seeking to bow before him, to listen to his word, and to change according to it, but people that are drawn to him just to see what all the fuss is about. Now, as Christians, I, I don't think we have the ability to read people's hearts to know what their motivations are for coming to Jesus, And in fact, many times, people that we might be pessimistic have pure motives coming to Jesus. And God's good providence received the preaching about the coming kingdom of God and themselves repent and bow themselves before the lordship of Jesus. And I think that means as Christians, while we can recognize that there are many that will be interested in Jesus for impure reasons... We need to be very patient with people as they come to find out about Jesus for themselves. Uh, the great evangelist George Whitfield had a friendship with a, a very uh, prominent famous guy, a guy uh, named Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Whitfield was a, a great evangelist during the Great Awakening preached to thousands, at one point, Ben Franklin himself calculated using some creative geometry that Whitfield preached to 25,000 people without any voice amplification at all, and people could all hear him, that's incredible, right? Uh, Now, that friendship is amazing, though. Uh, um, Franklin actually wrote of Whitfield, that he was a powerful, powerful preacher, that he could see how people were drawn to him, and he even found himself drawn to his message in some degree, and yet Franklin always kept Jesus at arm's length. He he never himself became a Christian. Now for every Benjamin Franklin, though, there are dozens who for a time are perplexed by Jesus, but through the witness of the church come to understand who he is, and come under his rule and reign in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I I don't know how much you know about Jesus. Uh, It could be that there's much about Christianity that you find perplexing. Uh, I understand that a book that was written thousands of years ago about a person that you've never met, that people would stake their whole lives upon that might seem like a very odd thing. It's okay for you to take your time getting to know Jesus and studying the Bible and and seeing what people that follow Jesus, Christians, are like. I hope you feel welcome here at our church to do all those things. But realize at some point, you will have to answer that question. Who is this man that dares to speak on behalf of God and claims to be the very king of the kingdom of heaven? Now to all of us here that are Christians this morning, I hope you're willing to be patient with people as they go on a journey to find out about what Jesus is like. Uh, no matter how much they know of the Bible or don't, if God has you in their life, you can be of help to them and faithful to your calling by helping them to know a little bit more about Jesus. A few weeks ago, I found myself in a situation where I was having a conversation with somebody who pretty quickly it was obvious, knew next to nothing about the Bible. Um, they were interested in the fact that I was a pastor, so they started asking me questions about what I did, about the religion that I am a part of. And um, I had a choice to make at that moment. Do I launch into my gospel presentation that I put in every sermon? Or do I try and give them something of a portion size that they might be able to understand? Now, in this case, I knew that I likely would have more conversations with this person down the road, so I had a bite-sized conversation. Uh, we talked about God and how He made us all, and how He intends for people to actually be able to know Him. And that was more than enough for them to be able to chew on for that conversation. Now I realize you can do that with a coworker that you maybe sit next to day after day or a friend that you see on a regular basis, you can break up the content of the gospel into manageable chunks and revisit conversations and so you don't have to do it all at once Um, maybe the first time you talk to them about the fact that god made us and wants to know us and the second time you talk about the fact that he made us in his image and intends for us to live a certain way that there is such thing as right and wrong Uh, maybe then you broach into the subject of sin the next time and you talk about what it means that jesus died on the cross the time after that And then you talk about what it means for someone to be forgiven and redeemed and how Jesus rising from the dead means our lives can be remade as well. Don't feel like you have to present the full gospel message to every single person that comes across your path. Uh, More often than not these days, it takes a whole number of conversations, usually with multiple Christians, for someone to understand who Jesus is. And what he demands of us as king of the very kingdom of God. So let's be patient with those who don't know Jesus yet. And let's be faithful to provide them with a little bit more so that Jesus would not forever be perplexing to them. But one day they might experience the power of his kingdom for themselves. I think that there is one final application to draw from this. I'm going to end on this point. It's that we need to realize one of the main obstacles that we have as Christians today in sharing the good news of Jesus with unbelievers. And that is the moment we live in related to politics. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, Uh, but we live in a highly politicized age. Uh, It's been said that everything is politics in our society. And that is different than it used to be. Um, And as such, people are highly sensitive to anyone they think is on the other side of the aisle as them politically. Uh, A news article came through my feed with a very intriguing title this week. It was, how much power do Christians really have? How much power do Christians really have? Uh, It was mainly statistics, but the thesis is really easy to grasp. It is that most people think about Christians less as people participating in a religion and more as people that are a part of a voting block. And people that are a part of that voting block feel as if their influence in society is diminishing, and as a result, most people have negative preconceptions about Christians. Now, I don't know all the data in that article whether it's accurate or not, but once the that idea is in your head, I think a number of the interactions that you might have with unbelievers might make a little more sense. Have you ever had the sense that you talk with someone and you bring up the fact you're a Christian and all of a sudden it gets really quiet? Now, it may not be that your breath is bad in that moment or you said something wrong. It's that all the baggage that comes from what they assume a Christian is like because of this voter view of Christians is suddenly being put on your shoulders. Now, not for a second am I implying that Christians should not think about and be very prayerful and careful about how they steward their votes. Uh, We live in a society where we each have a share of the authority of how things are run, and that's a big, big, big deal morally. I know there's an election coming up a little over a week, and I hope before the Lord you're very careful and think very prayerfully about how you're going to use your stewardship of your vote. But I do wonder, maybe unintentionally, do our neighbors get the impression that we have been empowered for a certain type of politics more than we've been empowered to proclaim the kingdom of God? Or maybe put it another way, what do you want them thinking about more? Who's sitting in the seats of the Senate? Or who's sitting on the throne of heaven? Before the Lord, may we be faithful to our calling in all realms of our lordship of Christ in our lives. But might we have our primary focus be where Jesus gave to his first 12 and then down to us to proclaim the kingdom with the power and authority he's given us. Let's not try and fit the kingdom of God into categories that are just like everyone else in the world, just seeking after power. Let's hold before them a king and a kingdom that will leave them puzzled and perplexed, a kingdom that's not of this world, a kingdom from heaven itself. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for entrusting us with this mighty privilege uh, that you would use us as your mouthpieces, as your ambassadors, as your sent ones, and even grant us the power needed to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God and of you, the worthy king over it. Oh, Jesus, would you help us to be faithful to that calling would we be bold and patient, loving, and yet willing to say the hard truths when they're needed to be said? And would you keep us from removing the perplexing nature of your message? Would we be the sort of people that people can't make sense of and yet feel drawn to, that they might come and hear of you themselves? and experience your powerful rule and reign in their lives. Oh Jesus, we confess that you are worthy. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.